Welcome to the ED ECMO podcast. This is Joe Belezo, and I'm sitting here with Scott Weingart and with Zach Shiner and our guest today, the guys from The Poison Review. So we have uh, Steve Axe and Leon Gusso from The Poison Review, uh, also the Poison Review blog and podcast. And you can find those guys over at thepoisonreview.com, all one word. Um, hey, guys, today we wanted to talk to you about uh, the management of the crashing overdose patient with ECMO. Fabulous. We are psyched. Uh, so with us, Leon is uh, at the University of Illinois Medical Center. He is uh, the emergency medicine news toxicology rounds guy and uh, medical editor of the Poison Review. And uh, Steve is the director of toxicology fellowship program at the Department of Emergency Medicine at the Cook County Health Systems Medical Center. Does that sound right? Absolutely. Yeah, pleasure to be here. So, you know, what we're looking at is the crashing tox patient and in our world, we're emergency room docs. We use ECMO to manage the patient who is crashing typically from a loss of cardiodynamics. So for the tox patient, we are using something called VA ECMO or veno-arterial ECMO for the most part. Uh, occasionally, you guys might come across a VV ECMO or veno-venous ECMO patient, somebody who has been maybe in your intensive care unit and is not doing well from a pulmonary perspective. But by way of basic background, veno-arterial ECMO acts as complete cardiopulmonary bypass, whereas veno-venous ECMO acts as pure pulmonary bypass. And how we do this, I'm going to take veno-arterial ECMO because that's the one that we really do most often in the emergency room, is we usually have a patient who's crashing in front of us and we will access their femoral vessels. And so typically it'll be a... Uh, a, a arterial cannulation followed by a venous cannulation in the femoral vessels, and that gets dilated up to various sized ECMO cannulas. Are those usually put in on the same side? Uh, we used to put them in on, on the same side. As a right-handed doctor, we'd usually put them in on the patient's right femoral vessels. We've now transitioned to putting them, one, usually the right femoral artery, and then reaching over and doing the left femoral vein. And there's a couple of reasons behind that, and it has to do with blood flow, primarily with blood flow to the ipsilateral leg. So you can imagine if you've got a big 19 French arterial cannula in your right femoral artery, you might have some troubles with flow down that leg. So that becomes worse if you have both the right femoral artery and the right femoral vein cannulated. Yes, got it. Yeah, so we'd have a patient who comes in and they've overdosed. I guess the classic overdose for us might be a calcium channel or a beta blocker, uh, one that's massive and uh, might come in with complete cardiovascular collapse. And in that situation, if we've instituted all of the usual supportive therapies and antidotes, uh, we would then move to possibly putting in a, a right femoral artery and a left femoral venous cannula in anticipation of putting them on full heart-lung bypass. Uh, yes, that's um, exactly right. When when I first started reading about ECMO, I realized it was a bridge to something else. So you have to have an endpoint. Uh, in acute myocardial infarction, it might be a bridge to the cath lab. In acute uh, pulmonary embolism, it might be a bridge to uh, thrombectomy. And that seemed like a perfect setup for tox patients because if you can, in most cases, give them a bridge to allow the body to uh, metabolize and eliminate the poison, 
um, they should be out of the woods. An additional benefit, I think, would be, especially in something like a calcium channel blocker, would be to allow distribution of the antidote, such as high-dose insulin. Um, so you sort of get um, two advantages from, uh, from one. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I kind of think of this historically because we've been thinking about calcium channel blockers for many, many years. And if you look at what we've tried over time, I mean, we had the, a period of just talking about perfusion salad before we even tried insulin and lipid, et cetera. Um, and bypass had been described back then, but I think what's so different now is if it's, if it's readily accessible in the hands of emergency physicians, we can take a totally different approach. And, and I agree with Leon. I mean, I think of this as a, as a bridge to metabolism in our case, that structurally there, there could be nothing wrong with this patient. We just have to clear this, this, this toxin out of the patient. Yeah, I know often a, uh, overdose patients are young and otherwise healthy. So they're the classic example of the, the heart too good to die. And uh, I'll take it a step further. When we're doing cannulation on these folks or on any patient who's a, a candidate for ECMO, uh, as we're going through the process, we usually have two doctors in the room. One doctor will be running the code and the other doctor will be placing lines. And usually there's a stop point at which you first access the vessels that will just turn to each other and say, number one, is this patient curative as opposed to a palliative care? Uh, and then secondly, what are we bridging to? And in this case, it would be a classic uh, benefit of bridging to elimination. Right. And, you know, Joe, I love the paper you guys wrote in resuscitation where you lay out your, your three stages. That really seems logical. So is that what you do? You basically at each stage you assess, do we go on from here or not? Often patients come in with very little information and a very chaotic resuscitation. And in those, in every single one of those cases, they're going to get a femoral artery and a femoral vein line. And that's usually at our shop, a five French artery and a nine French vein line in the groin. And, and those are just good resuscitation lines. You know, we also refer to that as our quote unquote stage one, uh, which is just setting things up for potential ECMO initiation. Uh, but what that also does is it gives you a great art line, great vein line, and at the completion of that, it'll be the end of stage one. We can then stop, take a pause. Uh, the doctors can convene and say, look, this is a patient who has palliative care. We just found out from his, um, you know, his daughter that he had uh, you know, kidney cancer or something, as opposed to the patient, like you guys are saying, a 20-year-old who overdosed and really they just, they're just despondent over their, their father's passing. So in that case, we would then commence the stage two, which is placing the bigger cannulas. We place those cannulas and then at the end of that, we will clamp the lines again and then take another brief break and say, okay, um, you know, are we really going forward with this? It gives, us an, it gives us stop points where we can briefly stop, convene, what are we bridging to? Right. That makes great sense. So two points on that um, because it might seem to make a lot of sense to then have stage one performed by emergency medicine regardless of their familiarity with ECMO in case ECMO is going to be done later. Um, the arterial line can't be the standard arterial line set. It's too small. It will not transition to anything later because it's 20 gauge. You need at least 18 or the uh, five French that Joe mentioned. And then it needs to be in the common femoral artery. Very typically, emergency docs place their catheters in the superficial femoral artery, and that will not be acceptable for transition to ECMO later on. Somebody okay. was setting up a program. Would you uh, recommend... Um uh, communicating or uh, having a partnership with a specific cervix like uh, cardiothoracic surgery? Um, and, and where do these, pe these patients go after they leave the emergency department? 
So um, this is Zach. Uh, I would say that the relationship component of this is incredibly important. So having a good relationship with your CT surgeon and with your ICU docs that are going to be managing these people after they leave the ER is going to be as important to making your program work as having successes with the patients. So Um, Yeah, I think those should be in conjunction. In our institution, we work in a community hospital and our relationships are very good. And so that um, just the the, having those good relationships before we even started our ECMO program helped us out tremendously over the years when we've had successes and when we've had failures at various places. We were discussing um, situations where ECMO would be very useful. And basically, you know, 95, 98% of toxicology cases do well just by regular supportive care or observation. But on the really nasty and often um, critical or fatal poisons, I think ECMO would be very useful. And those would include uh, agents such as calcium channel blockers, as we talked about, beta blockers, tricyclic antidepressants, antiarrhythmics such as flecainide. Mm-hmm. and even some unusual toxins, although there would be problems with this, such as um, paraquat. So, so yeah, paraquat. I did, I did a little bit of reading just on this to try and figure out. I know not very little about tox. I'll be the first to admit that. But for these people, um, it looked like in the beta blocker group that many people actually die after they get to the ER, that there's sort of this delay in their cardiotoxicity. And so then in these situations, are we able to predict the people well knowing that ECMO has a pretty substantial com- complication rate i mean this is not this is not a free shot understanding that there is a complication rate do you think that we can predict who's going to be the one that's going to go downhill and die on us versus the person who just needs supportive care you know i i think i think with a drug like calcium channel blocker um we probably know the most about those folks if if the patient's hypotensive bradycardic on presentation and you've basically gone past and you're already, you've got a presser going and you've got insulin and your hemodynamics are lagging. I mean, that, that's a patient I would say you'd be in full on go mode. So that, that case we know, I'd say for beta blockers, I, you know, we've, I've been astounded over my career that 90% of these cases do all right with supportive care. And that includes pressers um, and not specific antidotes, but then you'll have a few that will just crash and burn on you. Um, but it's less common, at least in my experience, in the calcium channel blockers. But So that's why I, I'm guess reading and understanding your staged approach, there's certainly no harm done by putting in those initial lines. And, um, you know, as the case is going south, decide if you go into, uh, into the stage two approach and dilate up. Okay, so so playing devil's advocate here, okay? So you know me, I'm I'm a big ECMO advocate, but if it, my reading of these beta blocker calcium channel toxicities that a lot of them are actually not ionotropic problems. They're more with vasodilatation, they're with hypovolemia. And so if you have a patient that is looking like they're going south, so they're not in arrest, they're in cardiogenic or whatever toxicologic shock. You're now going to put cannulas in and you're going to put them on the pump, which is going to create a transient hypovolemia, right? Because you're going to, you're going to be losing fluids during that state. I'm, and I'm just kind of throwing this out there. Are you going to potentially cause an arrest trying to put them on ECMO? 
Oh, I, I mean, I think that that's, this is exactly what we should be worried about. And I think the answer is, you know, we don't know until yeah. we've got some, some study or case series under our belt. Um, right. If you take off a large amount of volume, that, that would definitely be a disaster in these patients. I, well, I think it, it's somewhat a mixed bag, somewhat like um, the situation with lipids in that you'd expect, at least theoretically, the best uh, results if you started earlier rather than later. But you don't want to start it too early because, um, you know, if more traditional interventions will work, then ECMO won't be needed. And I think exactly where that balance point is, certainly we need a lot more information. Um, right, right. And also, also just from the toxicologist perspective, you get the bad calcium channel blocker and you're going full bore with insulin therapy. And then you're thinking of adding on um, lipids. Some of our colleagues, you know, are even are wondering about methylene blue. I, I mean, we don't really know how to use all these antidotes together. And um, I mean, that's why I always think back. We for years it's been written bypass is is the most heroic of therapies. That um, we we don't know how those the different antidotes interact with each other. Um, so that level of support definitely seems reasonable. Uh, what I was going to say, I think Zach made probably a, a really profound point that should be we should be cognizant of, which is ECMO fixes a bad pump. It does not fix toxicologic vasoplegia. So if the patient's main problem is their heart is beating wonderfully, but they are so profoundly vasodilated from their toxicity, ECMO may not be the solution to that situation. And, and a follow-up on that. So would you recommend, say it's a calcium channel blocker, somebody's hypertensive, not responding, maybe a perfusion salad, as they say. So it might be a poor pump. It might be vasodilatation. Would you do, uh, before starting a patient on ECMO, do a bedside echo and see what the heart looks like? Uh, you know, this, this is, it's getting really interesting, and uh, you guys know better than me, but there's different forms of calcium channel blocker toxicity. There's the diltiazem, where you're profoundly going to have a negative inotropy and a poor pump. And then there's the things like um, the oral, what is it, nicardipine and... Uh, Vetipine, right. Yeah. Right. Yep. Um, where it's going to be a vasodilation issue, and I'm not sure if ECMO is going to win on those latter groups. Right. Well, I, I think in overdose, though, the agents lose their specificity. So, um, you know, even if, say, it's a, a nifedipine overdose and somebody comes in hypotensive, uh, I think you're still not sure whether it's um, uh, because of poor left ventricular function or um, – uh, vasodilatation, it's probably a combination of the two. You know, in the initial phase, early on, you'll see that vasodilation. And, you know, I, I really, I love the idea, now ED using all this technology, of seeing what the squeeze is from the heart and uh, what's going peripherally is, is critical. I think all that's reasonable. I would just make the caveat to Scott's point that if somebody comes in and they're in complete cardiovascular collapse, I would not halt for getting an echocardiogram. But if it's one of those cases that's circling the drain, then yes, of course, you're going to want to think about it for a moment before you just... Yeah, so I think... So cardiogenic shock is different from cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. Cardiogenic shock, I'm going to think very long and hard before I start them on ECMO. Cardiac arrest... I think I'm going just full bore ECMO. At the same time, though, Zach, you, you're, you're also saying you'd probably put in sort of what we call the stage one, just so you have the conduits for, for placing a wire and then going ahead. And Absolutely. I would, on any of these patients, I would have the art line in as soon as I humanly possibly could get it in. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, and just for your guys' perspective, when we have a patient who comes in in arrest or peri-arrest, the way that that works out is a patient comes in, they get moved over to our gurney. We have somebody dedicated to pulling pants down and splashing the groins while with the other doctors doing the initial assessment and intubating and doing all those things. So it's become a priority in our in our shop, so much so that it's one of the first things that actually happens. Do you have a feeling for, and I know there are uh, cases in the literature where People have done well on ECMO when it was started after a fairly prolonged uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Um, do you have a feeling or do you have any guidelines for an uh, outer limit of uh, CPR beyond which uh, you don't think ECMO um, might be useful? Uh, it's a tough question. I mean, certainly in the hypothermic patient, the, the, all bets are off. But in the usual ER patient, I mean, we've had patients that have walked out of the hospital after a, uh, 69 minutes of chest compression. So our standard protocol, and this is backed up by the Japanese, and I think uh, the cheer trout is the same as 60 minutes of downtime um, pre-initiation of ECMO. I have another question I'd like to throw out is, do you think ECMO would be useful in a patient with um, either smoke inhalation or cyanide intoxication? Or even something similar to cyanide that might not have a specific antidote, uh, such as uh, dinitrophenol. So the ECMO machine is just acting as the patient's lung. And in, in both cyanide... Well, and heart, too. And, and heart. But from this perspective, it's, yeah. there's nothing good coming out of the ECMO machine that's going to fix either the CO bound to the hemoglobin, because the ECMO oxygenator is not going to be a, a higher uh, alveolar pressure than your lungs could generate, assuming their lungs are good. And, and in cyanide, you still have the same oxygen problem at the tissue level that ECMO is not fixing. So I really don't see any benefit in those two toxicities. Uh, except to possibly buy time to administer the antidote, which works fairly quickly. If what you're trying to solve is the cardiovascular collapse, then yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although, it, I, I mean, I agree, I agree with Scott. I think that you, know, you need to fix what's going on at the cellular level because you're having cellular asphyxiation. Yes. And as much as you, you, know, you, you bathe it in oxygen, it's still not going to work until you've reversed it. That's why I think the calcium channel blockers and these other agents where you can bring oxygen to the tissues, it makes a lot more sense. Now, one, one thing, though, what about this? Is there a secondary hit that can occur? Do you guys see people in the tox world who are, say, a cyanide poisoning, and then they get the antidote, they get sort of brought back, and they are then in cardiogenic shock? So can the cyanide cause a global heart dyskinesis that you'd need to have support for? Boy, I, you know, I think one of our colleagues likes to say the toxidrome of cyanide is that you're dead. And, uh, <laughs> and we don't really see them coming back. I don't think we have enough experience where we see that with any frequency. I think you've got to get that antidote in early, and you've got to reverse that, that cellular toxicity at the cytochrome system. All right, so I'm going to ask you guys a question. You mentioned Paraquat earlier on. And I'm assuming that with those types of things, you're using more of the veno-venous bypass. Is that right? Or are you, or is, is this, I'm trying to in, uh, envision your use of the veno-venous bypass for poisoning patients. Uh, I'm not sure. I would think, well, I mean, primarily the toxicity is to the lung. And uh, the um, trick is that it's not reversible. Uh, so you'd need a bridge, if you're going to consider it at all, consider it as a bridge to a lung transplant. And to think that a patient is going to... There, I, I saw two 
case reports in the literature, one of which I think was successful, but that was using ECMO as a bridge to uh, lung transplantation. I think they use VA ECMO, but I'm not, I'm not absolutely sure on that. Right. It seems like that is one, uh, to get a case that would come to a tertiary care center that could do all this, it seems pretty unlikely in the U.S. We have seen um, successful use in hydrocarbon aspiration. I remember one case um, in a local pediatric hospital where a child had horrible aspiration, developed um, really bad pulmonary effects, including pneumatoceles. And I, I th- I'm not sure if it was VV ECMO, but that would make sense. And they use that as a bridge till the lungs recovered enough where they could wean the child off and, and he ultimately su- survived. But I think there are a number of uh, cases where VV ECMO was used for uh, hydrocarbon aspiration in the literature. And that sure. seems to be a very promising uh, application. Okay, so we should, we should do this as long as we're on a, a tox ECMO segment. We should kind of say, what does the literature say? And, uh, I mean, my read here is that there are case reports for almost everything. There's mm-hmm. for cardiogenic, uh, for beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, lidocaine, flecainide. I found uh, one for uh, ibuprofen. Yeah. So that, that I see is a dime a dozen. But as far as studies more profound than that, what's, what's your understanding of the literature? Uh, there were really no studies. Uh, there are case reports. Uh, there may be a few, a handful of case series. But um, really, there are no um, studies that I know of. And, of course, any case report or case series is uh, uh, inevitably involves publication bias. So, yeah, so I guess that's the whole question is it's hard for us to assess whether they would have gotten better with or without ECMO in those things. But, I mean, that's going to be the case with most toxicologic interventions. Yeah, I doubt there will ever be, or at least anytime soon, a real you know, a randomized uh, control study on this. So uh, uh, basically you go to battle with the evidence you have. What I have seen here in the literature is that there's uh, some pretty impressive animal studies with lidocaine and with some of the uh, TCAs showing that basically people who get ECMO, all the animals survive and the ones who don't all die. Now, how, how do we interpret that? I think it's it's a bit hard to say, but... Um, well, am I right in assuming with TCAs, if you really, if you get them through the first six hours, eight hours, you're going to make it through? Is that fair? Yeah, maybe even the yeah. first two hours. So that seems like a win. It, it totally yeah. does. That seems like a perfect agent if your normal therapies aren't working. Um, it would be, that's a perfect bridge. Yeah, and not to, not to dumb this down too much, but from our perspective, if we have any patient who comes in who's in a curable situation and they're bridgeable to something. We don't care what that problem is. If they're bridgeable to a cath lab or bridgeable to the OR or bridgeable to thrombectomy or bridgeable to antidote or bridgeable to elimination, they're in cardiovascular collapse. They're not getting better. We will probably consider them for ECMO. Yes. Yeah. And I think what we're talking about is bridge to metabolism for the most part. There is, I, I should mention that there is a um, – Fairly up-to-date review article, up-to-date as to when it was published in 2013 in clinical talks by DeLang et al. from uh, the Netherlands. And they go through the literature that existed up to that point. And uh, they don't do a lot of analysis of the individual papers, but they certainly list them. And anyone who's interested in ECMO and talks 
and its possibilities, certainly should look at that paper, and we'll have that in our show notes. Right, and also the uh, the review article by Nicholas Johnson et al. in JMT, also in 2013, um, is a nice vignette and also a nice a nice review of the literature too. So, so understanding what you understand now about ECMO, would you use it on a cardiogenic shock t- or uh, calcium channel or beta blocker patient who is failing the other stuff? Who is still in cardiogenic shock, and you've you've given them everything you can from the ER? Yeah. You know, so I, I guess the simple answer is I would love to, um, and I guess this is where I really would love to, you know, hear more from you guys. So, you know, I'm at a center where we don't have this all put together. Um, if we had it in our wheelhouse where it was, it was ready to go, I think it is an option that we would go for because I know once once I've given insulin, and then I'm thinking of adding lipid on top of that. And uh, along with the pressors, I mean, I, that's that's the patient I would love to try it on. So yeah, I get as far as answering because I, I think this is where it's this is what's so fascinating about all of us being together here is that we're trying to put together something that doesn't occur very often, mm-hmm. where each of us have expertise in a given field, where there's no literature to sort of guide us one way or the other, and and if I had this patient, I in cardiogenic shock on a calcium channel blocker, I think I would be aggressive about. Um, ECMO, the question is, where would I pull the trigger? And I think I'm going to pull the trigger when I'm at maximum pressors, uh, maybe even multiple maximal pressures on the and patient. Let me just add to that. Is we had a calcium channel blocker uh, six months ago that came in, and our ER doc that was in-house uh, in the ER did not have the uh, capability of putting somebody on ECMO at the time as our overnight doc. And when the morning doc came in, the patient was in florid um, heart failure. And they ended up putting that patient on uh, VA ECMO, but the patient didn't do well. And I think even got bridged to LVAD because had, they had such severe cardiac damage. So maybe earlier is better. Yeah, um, but not too early. You know, as they say, <laughs> the, the key thing is to put, put them on, on ECMO when they need it, but not a minute sooner. A lot more information to uh, know exactly when that'll be. You know, I think at the beginning, uh, uh, it, as it spreads, I, I think a lot of times it might be after arrest. And that's probably not the ideal time, you know, unless the uh, things are clearly going south and not responding to anything. I think, Leon, you, you sent me a question about intralipid. Yeah, there, there is a... Um, Recent paper on this, I forget where it appeared, but again, we'll have it in the show notes, about, um, I, I know the experience of ECMO is used a lot in kids in, uh, in NICU or a pediatric ICU, and who also get interlipids as nutritional support. And um, the complica- some of the complications they see there are increased clotting, uh, agglutination of the lipids, and even cracking in parts of the machine. So the question was, would this occur in the talk setting? Um, the authors looked through the literature, found nine cases, and actually this 10th case I found that, that's just been published online. Um, and although the evidence wasn't complete, uh, in two cases it was specifically said there are no complications, and in the other seven cases it just wasn't uh, mentioned at all. There was a recent uh, beta blocker overdose, metoprolol overdose, uh, treated with ECMO, published in uh, online in American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And uh, that patient had failed interlipid, and uh, they didn't mention any complications up, yeah. Yeah, from the interlipid. So I think um, 
when I thought about it, the reasonable thing now is that if somebody's on ECMO, they really shouldn't de novo receive interlipids. And that, but if they've received interlipids in the past and it's failed, they disappear fairly quickly. I think Guy Weinberg said the half-life is 14 minutes. Right. And, you know, Guy also um, made a great point that the dose probably needed for initial resuscitation is, is don't give too much. So yeah. the initial bolus and then maybe move on to other resuscitative measures. And the other point he made is that, you know, we're dealing with the, the, far, the kinetics of this drug. The release is going to go on over time. So you can't keep delivering lipid that will be taken up. I mean, that's why, again, if you have a bridge until things recover. Right. So maybe I would think a bolus dose of lipid alone might be a good way to go before proceeding. I would actually agree with that. And let me just give you some a little bit of the physiology of the oxygenator because that's really where all the, the gumming up occurs. Oxygenators that are used during cardiopulmonary bypass are hollow fiber oxygenator. So you can think of them as little tubes with little pinholes in the sides of the tubes. And oxygen's traveling through that and that's how you're oxygenating the blood. And with those little pinholes are what get all gummed up by the by the lipid. The oxygenators that we're using now in ECMO or in percutaneous ECLS or ECMO are diffusion membrane oxygenators, which are more like if you can picture sort of a paper towel with the oxygen on one side and the the blood on the other, and they have less of a chance of becoming gummed up. While it, it can still happen, and it's still a concern, it's a little bit less of a concern on our ECMO carts that we are using for our crashing patients, and more so for the patients that are being put on in, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the operating room. Yeah, so if someone's on ECMO, I don't think they need lipids, and if, but if they've received lipids and they failed, you know, I don't think that's a contraindication to... Uh starting ECMO. Do you guys have any experience with throwing a dialysis unit in the circuit? Yes. It's definitely doable. It definitely has to be done in a group of nurses have experience doing it or else it's actually right. super dangerous. So at, at Maryland, we did it all the time, um, and but we had worked out how to do it without killing the patient. But it's definitely doable. The, the word from the perfusionist is it's probably safer to just put in a separate dialysis catheter. Um, oh, really? Okay. Um, unless you really, really know what you're doing. Um, and there's no, there's no barrier to putting in the dialysis catheter. So that's probably the smarter move. The other thing is um, it, you probably should be doing IHD if you want maximal toxicologic clearance, but there's huge hemodynamic consequences from that, as you know. If you have ECMO going on and hemodialysis going on through a separate catheter, do you run into a hypovolemia problems? You're not going to run into any more hypovolemia problems than you will with the IHD in an unstable patient without the ECMO. And in some ways, you may be ameliorating it. I don't know if it's a clever move. A patient sick enough to need ECMO probably will not tolerate the hemodynamic perturbations of IHD. Now, definitively, you could do continuous dialysis modalities with ECMO. And that's probably until someone smarter than me you know, really looks at the, the safety. I would say that would be what I would try. And we know that does still result in clearance. Not as good, but still gets clearance of most of the toxicologic agents. Um, so that would probably be the wisest move, I think, is a CVVH or CVVHD type modality and your ECMO in tandem. And there, most centers that do ECMO have experience on how to set that up.
Great. And and just one real word of caution is that when you do put in that big dia- 14 French dialysis catheter, you got to shut your circuit down for a minute or you're going to get a huge air embolus. It's going to create so much negative pressure. So one of our rules of thumb is that once you start the ECMO circuit, you can't put in a central line and that would include your hemodialysis catheter. It's as simple as shutting the machine down for the moment, uh, putting in your cannula, uh, closing the caps off, making sure that's a closed circuit and then you can restart your ECMO circuit. I, I would go so far as to say that if you have a patient with a toxicologic issue that HD may be a reality, um, and they're sick, you should just put in an IJ hemodialysis catheter up front before you even get to the ECMO point. There's no reason not to have that. They're probably going to need HD if it's a clearable agent by dialysis. And so early on, if you really wanted to make a toxicologic stage one, it would be a femoral arterial line that's at least 18 gauge. It would be a femoral venous line of really any size. And then it would be an IJ hemodialysis catheter if it's a toxicologic agent amenable to dialysis. Okay, so wrapping up today, tox and ECMO. We talked about intralipid, its ability to be used in and pre-ECMO, probably not as good once you've already got them on the circuit. We talked about dialysis. It can be complicated to initiate this, so you need people that are trained in how to do it, particularly when you're trying to think about the hemodynamic changes associated with acute use of dialysis in the crashing toxicologic patient. You need to understand that hypovolemia is a big problem in some of our tox patients, and so ECMO can potentially make that worse if you're going to initiate it. As far as your decision to initiate ECMO on patients, it's going to be a combination of factors. How sick are they? How likely are they to arrest or are they already in arrest? And this is not something that's going to be an algorithmic approach. You're going to need to take each patient specifically. Finally, in all of these sick tox patients, you should be getting that A-line early before they arrest, before they get sick so that you can initiate ECMO at a fast pace much quicker than if you were trying to get that A-line post-arrest. For the ED ECMO podcast listeners, uh, go check out Steve Axe as well as uh, Leon Gussow and their partners Jenny Liu and Teresa Kim over at The Poison Review. That's thepoisonreview.com. On behalf of Scott Weingart and Zach Shiner, Steve Axe, and Leon Gussow, this is Joe Belezzo, and we are signing out. The key thing is to... Put put them on on ECMO when they need it, but not a minute sooner.